Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you're here in the West service or watching over our East service or watching online, thanks for spending time with us this weekend. Uh, hey, before we continue our sermon series through the book of Galatians, which we've been spending all fall doing, uh, I want to uh, give you just one kind of word of pastoral encouragement. In fact, uh, on the pew, on your pew that you're sitting in or uh, on your row in Esau, you're going to find a bundle of rope. Uh, you'll find this towards the middle, probably, the inside of your row. If you wouldn't mind, if you're on the end, taking one of those pieces and then passing it down so that in just a few seconds, we're all holding a little bit of rope. I hope that works out mathematically. As you're doing that, I want to let you know, here at Christ Community Chapel, we have three big goals that we launched in 2021 that are for the next 30 years. We want every person within a 10-mile radius to have a Christ-following friend. We think this is how a critical movement of people coming to know God's love through Jesus is going to happen. We also want that for every community. To that end, we are starting local, independent, autonomous churches in communities all over Northeast Ohio. So to make sure that wherever a person lives, there's a church there that, that feels like their community, that looks like their community, that will tell them about Jesus. And then finally, we want that for everywhere. And to that end, we partner with various ministries and missionaries around the world to make sure that every part of the world has a gospel witness. It's actually that third goal that I want to talk, take just a minute and talk to you about. Uh, William Carey is one of the fathers of the modern missions movement. He was a British guy who spent his life taking the gospel to India. And when he would come back to England to give a talk to the churches there, he would often use this metaphor. He would say, I am going down into the pit, and I need you to hold the rope. He was using the metaphor of a miner in his day who would descend down into the mine with a rope, and the miner would be the one taking all the risk, going down into what could be a dangerous, treacherous situation, uh, the one actually putting himself at risk, but, but utterly dependent on the person or people holding the rope. And Carrie's point was simply this, is I'm taking my family to India so that we might, even though we're living in a different culture and a different uh, place and, and getting used to life in a very different way, even though we are taking the risk to get the gospel there, you, the churches in England, are holding the rope for us. Through your support, uh, your financial giving, and your prayer, you are enabling us to do what it is we do. And I want you to know that when you give to Global Missions here at Christ Community Chapel, we together are holding the rope for ministries and missionaries and Christians all over the world. And one of the reasons we're always looking to expand where we're working around the world is because we never know where the next crisis is going to be. And our goal is that wherever it might be, we are already supporting people there. And so uh, I'm sure like me, you've been watching what's happening in Israel and Palestine over the last week or week and a half, and it's devastating. The loss of life is devastating. And I want you to know that we are already working with ministries and, and partners and Christians in Israel and in Gaza, and, and we are blown away by the stories we are hearing from them. Uh, living in bomb shelters with their homes destroyed, 
everything they know being at risk, and yet the consistent message we are getting back is them saying we aren't going anywhere. That our neighbors are now in need of the love of Jesus, the message of Jesus, and the practical outpouring of the people of Jesus more than they've ever been. Choosing to remain in what is increasingly becoming, in both places, an incredibly volatile and risky place. They are the ones at risk. We are not. So to say we are in it together feels a little thin because they're the ones putting their lives on the line. But we are holding the rope for them. In our prayers and our giving, we are supporting them, and they feel that, and they appreciate that. What we wanted to do this weekend is to put a piece of rope in your hand that hopefully you might take with you and put wherever it is you spend time with the Lord in prayer. In your car, in some chair in your room, take it with you when you go for a walk, and that you might just hold on to that while you pray, remembering that while they're the ones choosing to stay and love and risk, it falls to us to hold the rope for them. Thanks so much for being part of the way we support them here at Christ Community Chapel. If you have a Bible, I hope you'll open it to Galatians chapter 3. Again, we're spending all fall going through the book of Galatians, kind of looking at the entire book. By the way, let me just say, as you're turning, and and if you don't have a Bible, uh, we make them available to you. Back of East Hall or in the pew in front of you here in the West Service. And the reading today is on page 914 and 915. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use that one. Uh, But let me just say two things to you. One is, I love being at a church where we will just sit and listen to the Bible be read for four minutes. I have to tell you, we are about life change here at Christ Community Chapel, but the power for life change is actually in the scriptures, not the person holding the microphone. It's my job to help you understand them, but the power to change your life is in them. So I love just sitting and listening. But I also want you to know that when we choose what section we're going to look at, what we're trying to do is capture a particular thought that the original author is communicating. In this case, he was verbose in communicating that thought. So we had to do a large reading. But you'll be comforted to know that even though it's a long passage, there's really one idea he's seeking to communicate. And it's that one idea that we're going to drill down in here in our time together this morning. To do that, I have three points, and they go like this. Very simple. The Bible is a story. It is God's story. And that's the key to finding yourself in it. The Bible is a story. It is God's story, and that's the key to finding yourself in it. All right, let's start with the first one. The Bible is a story. I don't know your level of familiarity with the Bible. You may have been around it for a long time, feel like you know it backwards and forwards. You may be totally new to it, but lest I assume, let me just make sure we're understanding this. The Bible is a story. Now, when I say story, I don't mean fiction. The Bible is not fiction. Its its characters are real. Its historic events did actually happen. I don't mean fiction, but I do mean narrative. The Bible begins with God creating the world, and it ends in the new heavens and the new earth. And what moves us from A to Z is a story. Now, that's important. It's important for understanding the Bible. Because after all, if God had wanted to give us a textbook, he could have. If that's the format that he had desired to communicate in, he could have done that. If he had wanted to give us a collection of wisdom sayings in Proverbs form, he could have given us bullet points. 
That's, that's what the way that God wanted to communicate. He was capable of doing that. So the fact that God chose story is instructive for how we make sense of the Bible. And in fact, that is central to Paul's argument here in this passage. What he's saying is that if you don't understand that the Bible is a story, you will actually reach some fundamental, fundamentally wrong conclusions about what it is saying, about who it says God is, and about how it describes your relationship and my relationship with God. The Bible is a story. Now, I want to just say two things about this quickly. One is, if that's new to you, if you think, well, I don't know if I've ever thought about that. Now, I don't know if I, I've ever thought about reading the Bible in that way. I want to pause just for a second and recommend a resource to you. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Now, Thursday night, I said incorrectly that we give these away to new families. And I was told very quickly, we do not. <laughs> but if you swing by the children's area, you might just tell them you were here on Thursday and Zach said you could have one. But... It, but this is a phenomenal resource. In fact, when I teach classes on how to read the Bible, I actually use this as my textbook, even for adults. It's obviously a book written uh, with children in mind, but it is an incredible resource for reading the Bible as a story. I'd love to recommend it to you. You can get it anywhere books uh, are sold. Uh, we're also giving these away to, I double-checked on this, to the families of the children who are being dedicated uh, this evening. And that's because we really believe in this resource. So if there's a new concept to you, I really want to recommend that you check this out. You're going to love it. It's beautifully written and illustrated. But the second thing I want you to understand is the Bible is a story, which means, which means you are already better at understanding it than you think. You're already better at understanding the Bible than you think because you've been making sense of stories your entire life. When we were kids, they would teach us morals by wrapping them in a story like the boy who cried wolf to teach us integrity. They would tell us stories when they put us to bed at night. We've watched television and movies and listened to audiobooks and read books. We know stories. We understand stories. And if the Bible is a story, that should give us a lot of confidence that we can make sense of it. By the way, I think that's why, by, I think that's why God put it in the form of a story, because stories resonate with us. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I want you to imagine just for a second that you and I are watching a movie. In the opening scene of the movie, the camera shows us a room that is dark. It's, it's nighttime. And a man, oh, the door opens and a man comes in nervously, quietly, sneakily. And he goes to the fireplace and he starts a fire. And in the light of the fire, we can see that this guy is disheveled and dirty and battered. And as the fire gets going, he begins to take articles of clothing off and throw them in the fire. And as he watches them burn, he looks nervously around the room, jumping at any little sound. All right, let's pause the movie for a second. What do you already know is going on in that story? A lot, right? Something has happened. Probably not a romantic comedy. Right? Something has happened. Something serious. This guy is scared. And he might be bad because we've seen enough CSI episodes to know he's getting rid of evidence. How do you know all that? I didn't tell you any of that. I didn't have to. Because you've been making sense of stories your entire life. You know that when the author shows you something, it's on purpose. 
And when she doesn't show you something, that's on purpose too. Everything you're being told is driving at a particular point. And what Paul is saying is that you have to understand that to understand the Bible. But the good news is you do understand that. You know how to read a story. But that leads me to the second point, which is to say the Bible isn't just a story, it's God's story. What I mean by that is maybe the most fundamental thing that you need to know to make sense of any particular story is you need to know who the main character is. Because everything in a story we make sense of in its relationship to the main character. And what Paul is saying is the most fundamental reason people get the Bible wrong. In fact, he's making an even bigger argument. The most fundamental reason that people get God wrong, get religion wrong, get salvation wrong, is because they misunderstand the main character. Now, to understand this, we're going to have to do a little bit of background. Remember that we've been learning that Paul is writing the letter to the church in Galatia because he's defeating or seeking to defeat a particular false teaching that is rising up in this church. And the false teaching goes like this. In the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, you will find a law, a legal code, a list of rules of, of things to do and not to do, rights and wrongs. And what this group was saying is that this is the fundamental key to understanding God. In fact, their message was this, that God is interested in loving you, but he's interested in loving you with a contractual or transactional love. Now, here's what I mean by that. Contractual or transactional love is love that is conditional based on what you do. It's love that comes in the form of an if-then statement. If you do this, then I will do that. If you behave this way, then I will interact with you that way. If you do this, then I will love you. You, that's what they were saying, that that's what the law represented, that God was saying to people, if you keep the rules, then I will love you. And conversely, if you don't keep the rules, then I won't love you. If you want to understand contractual, transactional love, all you need to do is think of your relationship with your employer. Because when they tell you, we just love you, and we appreciate you. Here's what they're really saying. As long as your numbers this quarter are good. Because if they're not, guess what's going to happen? Their love is going to go away. It's a conditional relationship. If you perform up to the level that we want you to perform at, then we will love you, bless you, pay you, honor you. you with your employer, you are only as good as your last win. And I know that because that's what Joe told me when I got here this morning. That's contractual, transactional love. But here's what Paul says. The problem is, is that that's what every human religion teaches us about God. That God loves with a contractual, transactional love. That what God says to us is, if you do this, then I will do that. And by the way, Paul's not wrong. At the, at the core of every religion is this idea of transactional love. If you keep these five pillars, if you walk this eightfold path, if you keep the law, if you keep the sacraments, if you show up at church, 
if you become a member of the church, then you can know that God loves you. But Paul says, here's the problem with that. The people who come to that conclusion clearly weren't paying attention at the beginning of the movie. Because Paul says there's a particular scene in the story of the Bible that is one of the most important scenes, maybe the most important scene, to making sense of the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament. And it happens in Genesis chapter 12. Now the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are like the first 10 minutes of the movie, right? We meet all the characters, we know what's going on in the world, so that when things take a turn, we're ready for that. So in Genesis 1 through 11, we find a God who has spoken the world into existence, who's taken Adam and Eve, his favorite creations, and rested them in the Garden of Eden. And he's made a world in which they can flourish. And Adam and Eve decide they, they don't trust God, that they want to engineer their own flourishing, and so they rebel against God. And that world is plunged into chaos. From that, we get Cain killing Abel. We get a world so corrupt that it must be flooded. We get a bunch of people coming together to build a tower to the sky so that they can be God. The, the setting of the Bible story is a world plunged into chaos. And in the midst of that, in Genesis chapter 12, we're told that God comes to a man named Abram, and he speaks to Abram. Now, you know Abram, Abram because he goes on to become Abraham. Abraham, by the way, a man universally respected by religions, a man that Muslims and, and Jews and Christians all agree had a particularly special relationship with God. But what Paul says is that you have to pay attention to the way the story is told. You have to pay attention to the kind of relationship that he has with God. Because when God shows up, guess what? We know nothing about Abram. We're not given his resume. We're not told that he's moral that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he's religious. In fact, if you read the story, you'll find that he has good days and some pretty bad ones too. In fact, Abram's father's name is Tehran, which derives idiomatically from an old pagan moon god. So Abram is probably worshiping the moon, which I have to tell you is the lamest thing to worship. The moon doesn't even have its own light. So he's not just religious, he's bad at it. But God comes to Abram and says this, start walking. I'm going to do something wonderful through you. You see, Paul says that when God shows up, it isn't actually about Abram. It isn't actually about Abraham. It isn't about the kind of man he is. He's not the main character. You see, in transactional, contractual understandings of religion, we are always the main character. It's about whether or not we will do, whether or not we will achieve, whether or not we're moral, whether or not we're religious, whether or not you know this, you've, you've felt this. It's about whether or not we had a good week and can expect God loves us or a bad week and should maybe stay away. But Paul says, but the story of the Bible is actually not about Abram. It's not about us. It's about a God who shows up, not with contractual love, but with covenantal love. A God who shows up, not with a deal, but with a promise. Abram, start walking because I am going to do something Great. Covenantal love is love that is unconditional. Covenantal love says, no matter what you do, no matter who you are, I'm going to love you. 
It's the kind of love that every one of these parents felt for these children when they were born in the delivery room when they held that baby and said, I have no idea if you're going to be smart. I have no idea if you're going to be successful. I have no idea if you're going to be good looking. I know nothing about you except for this, that I will love you no matter what. And Paul says when God shows up in the story of the Bible and speaks to Abram, that's the kind of love he brings. It isn't about Abram and what he's going to do. It's actually about God and what he's going to do. Paul says you have to understand this because here's the thing. God says this in Genesis 12. And yes, later comes a list of rules. And Paul tells us, but here's the thing. That list of rules comes 430 years after the promise to Abram. So Paul says any story reader knows this. You make sense of what happens in a story by what's happened before it. Isn't that true? You make sense of what happens in a story by what's happened before it. And he says, here's what we know. God's made a promise and the whole story is not about Abram. It's about whether or not God will keep his promise. And everything that happens in the story has to be interpreted that way. By the way, that's why when you read the Bible, it works so hard to demythologize its heroes. That's why you know Abram's weaknesses, or Moses, or Joshua, or David, or so on. It's why you know that they were just men, because they're not the heroes. They're not the main character. They're not the one you're supposed to be paying attention to. The main character of the Bible is God, and not just any God, but a covenant love God. And Paul says, if you don't understand this, you won't understand the Bible. He says it this way in verse 29. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Not according to performance, not according to if then, not according to contracts or transactional, but according to promise. Listen, listen. God does not base his love for you on the basis of who you are or what you do. I know it's what every religion has taught you. So every church you've come from maybe has told you, whether they meant to or not. God is a covenant-making God. And when you understand that, here's what happens. Third point, you can find yourself in the story. When you understand that, that he's the main character, that it's about his promise-making and his promise-keeping, then and only then can you find yourself in the story. Because here's the thing. If God is only loving people who perform, if God is in the business of transactional, contractual love, then you'll never be sure that he loves you. You'll never be sure that you belong in the story. That's why religions that give you a scoreboard never bother to tell you how to know if your score is positive. Have you ever thought about that? You can never actually know how much moral performance you're supposed to bring. You never actually know when you cross the threshold to be a winner instead of a loser. You die hoping your score is good, which makes some of us try harder and makes others of us give up. But what Paul is saying is that if you think that way, you'll never know for sure you're in God's story. That's why, by the way, he tells us that God gave us the law. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the rules in the Old Testament was simply to show us if God were to love us contractually, if he were to love us transactionally, we could never, ever, ever earn our way in. We would never get the love of God. You see, God, God understands that for most of us, the thing that will keep us from getting him is not our rebellion, it's our religion. 
It's trying to engineer something that you can't engineer. That's why, by the way, he references Abram with Ishmael and Isaac, because at a certain point in Abram's life, he stops trusting God, and he decides, if God's going to keep his promise, I better do something. And he forces his slave to sleep with him, gets her pregnant, has a son, and says to God, aha, here's the son you promised, Ishmael. And God says, that's not the son I promised. You can't make this happen, Abram. You are not the main character. Listen, I'm telling you, for some of you, you will never find yourself in God's story until you stop trying to force your way in. Because you don't have to. Paul uses an interesting metaphor here for salvation. And if you lean in, it'll change your life. The metaphor he uses is the metaphor of inheritance. Look at verse 18 with me. He says this, For if the inheritance comes by the law... It no longer comes by promise, but, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He'll say in verse 29, if you are in Jesus, you are heirs according to Abraham. Why does Paul use the metaphor of inheritance for salvation? It's simple. Do you know how an inheritance works? When you get, when you receive an inheritance, you are receiving the benefit for work you did not do. Is that true? When you get an inheritance from mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, whoever it might be, when you receive, when that will is being read, they are taking their money from the work that they have done and they're giving it to you. Whatever it is, money, cars, property, or in the case of my children, books. That's about the best I can offer. When you receive that, what is happening is they are saying, I worked for this, I achieved this, I earned this, but out of my love for you, I want to share it with you. Friends, what Paul is saying is that that's what God was doing with Abraham. He was making a promise, Abraham, I'm going to do something great. And because I love you, you're going to benefit from it. And Paul tells us that something great that God was going to do is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who would put in the work of living righteously, living a perfect life, and then going to the cross and dying an atoning death so that on the cross, God is taking the sins of the church and putting them onto Jesus and taking the righteous, finished, perfect life of Jesus and putting it on the church. And Jesus dies, making the exchange final, and he raises from the dead and ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God and speaks on behalf of everyone who says, my hope is not that God loves me with a contractual, transactional love. My hope is not that God traffics in if-then statements. My hope is that when the will is read, my name is there because God did the work and he loves me enough to share. And that just rhymed, <laughs> for the record. Friends, the hope you have of salvation is not earning it. That's why everyone who tells you to earn it can never tell you when for sure you have. It's why the most religious people are the most restless when they lay in bed at night. Because we never actually know how the scoreboard reads. You know why we don't know how the scoreboard reads? It's because God doesn't deal in scoreboards. His invitation is to stop seeing yourself 
as the main character, to stop seeing yourself as the one who has to do the work. Stop seeing yourself as the one whose performance is the basis for God's love for you and instead say, this is my hope, that there is nothing about me, there's nothing about me that would cause God or force God to love me, but that out of his infinite love and mercy, he's done the work and I'm in the will. By the way, this is why in Galatians 3 at the very end, he says, for there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. He doesn't mean those categories don't exist. I have to tell you, modern world, the Bible tells us there is male and female. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that in every culture, there's a power dynamic. In Paul's culture, you wanted to be born Jewish, male, and free. And if you were, you were at the top end of the spectrum. And the bottom end of the spectrum when you were born a Gentile, woman, slave. But what he's saying is, you see, the gospel eradicates all of that. Because at the end of the day, God doesn't love you based on your Jewishness or your Gentileness, your maleness or your femaleness, your slaveness or your freeness. God loves you on the basis of this is your name in the will. In other words, what Paul is saying is simply this. If we stopped ever, a random person in heaven, if we did this for all of eternity, every time a person walked by, we just stopped him and said, how did you get here? We wouldn't hear a single word about pillars or paths or sacraments. Every one of those people would say, I'm here because God is a God of covenant love who did everything necessary in Jesus. And out of his infinite love and kindness put me in the will so that I stood to inherit for work I did not do. Friends, how sure are you that God loves you? For so many of us, the restlessness over God's love is what drives us to make bad decision after bad decision because we've been sold a story that isn't true. You do not have to earn God's love. Jesus Christ has earned it for you. You simply have to stop trying and start trusting. Let me pray for us. Father God, a lifetime of feeling as though we have to earn love makes it really hard to pivot. And the truth is we think of you as a transactional God because we love transactionally. And we assume you're like us. So I ask you in the power of your Holy Spirit to do what a sermon cannot, which is to overwhelm us with the truth experientially that you are not like us. That your love is based on who you are and what you have done in Jesus. Help us to stop trying and to just receive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.